This morning, we're turning our attention to Psalm 110. If you didn't get a handout, you'll want one. Handouts are in the back. A lot of cross-references there that we won't turn to this morning, but you may want to go back and study on your own. So grab a handout. Our plan for this morning is to, really for the first few minutes of our time, to set Psalm 110 in its biblical and theological context, and then to do an exposition of the psalm itself with a look at the verses of Psalm 110, of course. Before we read it, I just want to say what some of you may know, and that is that Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. I want to say that again. It's not merely the most quoted psalm. It is the most quoted Old Testament text. Of all the Old Testament, 75% of your Bible, Old Testament, of that entire section of inspired, holy words, Psalm 110 is used by the New Testament inspired authors more than any other portion of the Old Testament, which automatically tells us something by way of observation. It's pretty important. It's pretty important that we understand Psalm 110, that we're familiar with it. And so we want to do our best this morning to have a, a greater familiarity with this text and greater understanding of what it is that we're to take away and learn from this psalm. I'm going to read Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 110 is a prophecy of David. We, of course, have the superscription but more important than that, we have Christ himself telling us this. Matthew twenty-two forty-three, 43, he attributes the authorship of this psalm to David and its inspiration. He says, David in the spirit says, and then he quotes the psalm. Acts, in Acts 2, 30, Peter says that David was a prophet. And so we see this is, is a prophetic text. This isn't referring to something that David experienced it's not referring to something ref about another king in the sense in, in David's immediate future. It's not a coronation ceremony or something of that sort for Solomon or king after Solomon. This is a prophecy. And Psalm 110 is a prophecy about David's Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we see that. From Matthew twenty-two forty-three, when Jesus says, look, David then calls him Lord. David is referring to someone greater 
than himself in this psalm. And Jesus tells us that. So just right off the bat and wondering, man, where are these conclusions coming? That's just straight out of your New Testament. Okay, Matthew 22 and then similar verses in the other Gospels. What's our vantage point for how we read this? I've already started our time by giving you two conclusions from the New Testament. What's our vantage point? Well, some of what David prophesied here and wrote has happened and is present right now for us. And in this regard, our vantage point, really, we, it's more informed than David's. For example, we're going to see that the Lord's exaltation spoken of in this psalm has already occurred. His exaltation, the New Testament writers are going to tell us and tell, throughout, has already happened. The start of this psalm, that's already occurred. But also, some of what David wrote, David prophesied, is still yet to come. And we still wait for that. And so in that regard, our vantage point for reading is exactly the same as David's, meaning that we're expectant. The Lord's conquest of his enemies and ruling from Zion has not happened. And so in that regard, we still look forward to that in the same way that David looked forward. Again, now we have more information about who David's referring to. We have more information even about the nature of some of the things that he looked forward to. But we still look forward to some of what is prophesied in this psalm, just like David. So as I mentioned, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. By some counts, maybe 23 different times it's quoted or alluded to. I think we can see this vantage point comment and really how we're to read Psalm 110 if we just take a brief survey of Psalm 110, starting from David and then think throughout, it's used in the New Testament. And again, I've given you these references in your handout and I'm, we're not gonna turn there. I think David in the 10th or 11th century BC is prophesying about the future Messiah. What roles he will play, what he will do, namely coming to conquer as Yahweh's king priest, as God's king priest. So David looked forward to a time when who he's speaking about in Psalm 110, this king priest, global rule would be manifest, when all enemies would be struck down, and when his people would be with him. So fast forward, maybe a thousand years, Jesus shows up. And Jesus uses Psalm 110 to inform the people that he, Jesus, is David's Lord. The Lord spoken of in Psalm 110. He, Jesus Christ, is the Messiah of Psalm 110. And you see that in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 20. Jesus also uses Psalm 110 to inform his enemies that one day they would see him exalted. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. There he combines Psalm 110 with a section of Daniel to indicate what his enemies would see in his exaltation and his coming. And if we allow for the entire psalm to be referenced, he's telling this to the leaders of the Jews who certainly knew Psalm 110, then really the outcome for those enemies that he was speaking to would have also been in view because Psalm 110 says a lot about what will happen to the Messiah's enemies. Yet contrary to what Psalm 110 says, contrary to ruling with the scepter, 
Contrary to exercising dominion from Zion, Jesus is crucified in Zion, not wearing the crown of a conquering king, but the crown of thorns, a crown of humiliation. And yet, wonderfully, the crucified king of the Jews is resurrected. And he ascends back to the Father, and the Spirit of God is poured forth, forming the church. And then beginning in Acts 2, with Jesus ascended, the New Testament writers use Psalm 110 to teach a few different things. Essentially, they use Psalm 110 to show the ways that the person and work of Jesus Christ is confirmed by the Scriptures. What they don't do, and this is important, is change the meaning of Psalm 110. They don't subvert its meaning. They don't reinterpret. They don't transform Psalm 110. They use it and fill it out based on God's work in Christ and explain what Jesus was doing and show how Jesus' life and ministry and work, and in particular, his ascension and exaltation, are exactly what David was speaking of in Psalm 110. Giving you a few different categories here. The portions of Psalm 110 referring to the Messiah's exaltation at God's right hand. That is, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the most quoted portion of Psalm 110. And that portion is used to show that the resurrected and ascended Jesus is the exalted Messiah. And I've given you a number of verses there. You can note that Romans 8 actually combines the exaltation right hand and a priestly function, which we'll see in Psalm 110 was prophesied for Jesus, Romans 8, 34. That section is also used to show that his sacrificial work is superior to all other sacrifices and complete, that he made sacrifice, he made atonement, and he sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 12, Hebrews 10. It's used to show that his priesthood just in general is superior in particular, the Levitical priesthood in Hebrews 8. Further, the portion of Psalm 110 referring to the order of Melchizedek, that portion is used to refer to the superior nature of Christ's priesthood, and it's referenced several times in Hebrews and actually unpacked there. Psalm 110 is also quoted in the New Testament with reference to Christ's current, what is right now for us even, waiting until his future reign when he subjects his enemies. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and Hebrews 10, 13. He is set down and he is waiting. And that's where we are in our redemptive history right now. The until in Psalm 110, which is then picked up in particular in Hebrews chapter 10, that's where we're at. The time between his comings. So I encourage you to go and look at those references and see how the New Testament writers use Psalm 110 to teach about the Christ to teach about Jesus. Now, as we seek to understand, we, again, just hermeneutically, I want to help us distinguish between new revelation that fills out details. For example, David foretells a Messiah, and we know that that foretold Messiah is Jesus Christ. David foretells of the Messiah's exaltation, and we know that that exaltation occurred as a result of resurrection and ascension. David foretells of a coming eternal priesthood, and we know the priest, and we know that his priesthood is eternal because he's resurrected. So there's a filling out more detail that explains David's prophecy, 
But that's on one hand, we want to keep that separate in our mind from interpretive errors that would assign meaning, which David had no awareness to communicate. That would be views of Psalm 110 that say something like that the conquest of the Messiah described in these verses is happening right now as the nations are subdued by the gospel. That's not what David had in mind. The New Testament writers don't explain it that way either. They simply show that there's greater detail that we now know because of the revelation of Jesus Christ than what David had. But they explain David's meaning. They show that this additional revelation and what we call progressive revelation that we know more now as scriptures unfolds over time, the, the facts that, that fill in the prophecy. But no change, no subversion, no reinterpretation. So our vantage point for reading Psalm 110 is the same as it was for the New Testament writers. In it, we see some aspects of the Messiah's role, which were confirmed in Jesus. We see what Jesus is doing now, and we read Psalm 110 looking forward to what we should expect when he returns. So now let's look closer at Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The background, important background to Psalm 110 would be, firstly, the Davidic covenant. And I've given you some reference verses there that you can look up. But in summary, just as a reminder, God promised David that he himself would provide a forever Davidic dynasty. That's the Davidic covenant. And of course, plays a significant role in the life of God's people. And we know when Jesus comes on the scene that he demonstrates that he was that promised Davidic king. And is that promised Davidic king? But if we can put ourselves back just a little bit into timing, certainly after Psalm 110, but during the period of Israel's history when they looked with eager anticipation to God's fulfilling the Davidic covenant but weren't experiencing it, we see this hope and expectation. And I've given you some psalm references there that are important to help us sense that. There was a hope and expectation in the ancient audience. Why is that important? Well, there's a sense of expectation in the psalm. And of course, while we know some of the fulfillments, our expectation is more informed than theirs was, it's important as we read the psalm as best we can to just try to have a sense of the, if I can't say the feeling, the emotion that's in the psalm that is looking forward. We don't live in a day of kings and priests. Now, of course, there are those designations for offices in our world, but they're nearly all emptied of the significance and associations they would have had in ancient times. Kings meant victory and defeat, prosperity or poverty, personal security or fear, right? Nations were led by kings. Nations, of course, under God's ultimate rule, were brought up and were brought down by kings, and so a prophecy about a king who would be the ultimate king, executing God's ultimate victory, ultimate righteousness, all that, it was significant, and it was longed for. God had promised to establish Israel and to establish Israel via a righteous king from the line of David forever. And yet for, of course, Old Testament history from that covenant, they didn't experience that in full. 
And the Psalms I've referenced, Psalm 72, Psalm 89, Psalm 80, they're not chronologically before Psalm 110. But they do reveal some of the disappointments and the longings of the people waiting for God to give them the king that he had promised. Just listen to the words of Psalm 89, the end of Psalm 89. Of course, read the whole thing. The context is very important for the end. But after articulating the promise of the Davidic covenant, reaffirming what God had said and promised to David, the psalmist then says this, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of, of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Salah? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. And of course, the refrain of faith, blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. And in the context of that psalm, this is, it ends on a down note with disappointment, not faithlessness, but disappointment. And so as we come to Psalm 110, I guess I would say we need to use our imagination a little bit and engage our mind in contemplation. We read of battles in fictional literature, um, Chronicles of Narnia, for example. We read of good versus evil. You watch a film and your chest pounds and you get goosebumps formed when the good guys win and victory is secured. We recognize right and wrong and wrong being dealt with in narrative and in story. And this is real. The people looked forward to a king a king who would fulfill all of the Lord's promises, a king that would bring long-awaited welfare for this people and victory. And we need our king to return. We know him, but we do not yet know the fullness of his kingdom. We've experienced some of the blessings of his kingdom, and by some, I don't mean to minimize them, New life, life with the Spirit of God. But we do not yet know the experience or the fullness of the victory over evil and death. God's promises to David have not yet been completely fulfilled, and so we look forward with expectation for the coming of the Messiah. And just one more thing about this. Sometimes there's this erroneous reading of the Gospels and Acts, and it says something like this. These poor dim-witted disciples and all their political expectations. Remember, you've heard this. You read the disciples, they're asking for Jesus to be a king. When are you gonna establish your throne? And the teaching goes, you know, they just didn't get it. Well, they didn't get all of it. But I wanna point out to you, and you can go back and study this on your own, Jesus never changed their expectation in that way. He never told them they expected the wrong thing. He just filled out their expectations. He expanded it. He said, yes, a kingdom. Yes, thrones. Yes, me, the Messiah ruling. But first, sacrifice. First, atonement for sin and resurrection. And then those things. And so the expectation we see in Psalm 110 was the expectation of the disciples. And then as they go on to explain Psalm 110 and the rest of the New Testament, they're filling out how Jesus fulfills and is yet to still fulfill those expectations. Our outline 
then hopefully unsurprising will be around expectations. As we look at the Psalm 110 and the coming, conquering priest, king, Messiah. Psalm 110 says essentially that God will extend the rule of his priest, king, Messiah so that he will triumph over his enemies. God's going to extend the rule of his priest, king, Messiah so that he will triumph over his enemies. We're going to break down or look at this psalm around six expectations for the coming, conquering priest, king, Messiah. Expectation number one, he will be exalted at God's right hand until the time for his conquest. He will be exalted at God's right hand until the time for his conquest. The psalm starts out, the Lord says, this is a declaration just like you see in the prophets, thus declares the Lord. So think language like they used before they gave revelation to the people. That's what David's doing here. This is the Lord is going to speak. This is a declaration. Now we have this, what is famous because we know it from Jesus using it to show his opponents that he himself was the Messiah. He uses this, the Lord says to my Lord, right? So the word Lord, if you have an NASB and you've got the Lord and it's all caps or small caps and then regular Lord and the two words there, the first one, the small caps is the word uh, that we sometimes translate as Yahweh. And the second one is Adonai. So throughout this psalm, I may say God, I may say Yahweh, and I may use those interchangeably, but I'm trying to, to identify the person that is being spoken of in Psalm 110, designated in, our, in the New American Standard as Lord in small caps. And then, of course, at one point, actually in verse 5, that switches, and I still think it's God, Yahweh. We'll get there. Uh, but Yahweh and Adonai. And so, again, as we work through these, I'll use God and, and Adonai, Yahweh and God interchangeably, and then this Adonai is talking about the Messiah, priest, king. The implication of this first verse, the Lord says to my Lord, is simply that David is witnessing this conversation. And the one God, Yahweh, is speaking to is, is a Lord greater than David. And David is a king. He is the king. He is the Davidic messianic king at that point in time. He is on the throne, ruling as God's anointed. But he sees Almighty God, the Lord Yahweh, talking to Adonai. And God, Yahweh, says, sit at my right hand. This denotes a position of power, of authority at the side of the Almighty. It's authority beyond anything known on earth. He says, be there until. Until, right, denotes a time of, of this period of time between this exaltation, this sit at my right hand, and then what comes next, which is until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So again, the eyes, the yours, the he's are very important in Psalm 110. Here I, God, Yahweh, says I will make your, the Messiah's, enemies a footstool. So you're going to sit at my right hand in this position of exalted authority until I make your, the Messiah, king, your enemies a footstool. That is until they're subjected under him. The picture is that he has their foot on their necks. 
We see that usage in the Old Testament. Until his enemies are subdued under him. This doesn't imply passivity on the part of the Messiah. It just implies that Almighty God, Yahweh, is the one who's ultimately behind what's occurring. A king will be established, and that king will be established over all of his enemies. That's what's being referred to here. So sit in this position of exaltation until until the time of the king's foot being on the neck of his enemies. So what we see in this first verse, in summary, this already and right now divide, God has given the Messiah authority and power. That's what's being prophesied. And will give and will give him victory. The king is to remain in this position, his, his session being seated at God's right hand until God subjects his enemies under him. And according to the New Testament and all those verses I gave you earlier in your handout, the exaltation to the right hand of God has occurred with Christ's resurrection and ascension. He currently possesses all authority and he waits until the appointed time of the conquest granted to him by Yahweh, by God. Verse two gives us another expectation and that is, and of course it's related, but it's distinct. He will be given dominion and his rule will be established on the earth. Verse two, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Scepter is a rod. It's an instrument of rule. And the second part of the verse makes clear that the scepter denotes rule, right? Stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, and then the Lord tells him, he commands, rule. So the scepter here denotes his rule, his ruling. A powerful rule is what's pictured in verse 2. And again, God, Yahweh, is acting on behalf of the Messiah. It's God who will establish the powerful rule of his Messiah. Right? Almighty God, who sits in the heavens and does what he wishes, he's the one who grants power and authority and dominion to his king. That's what's pictured. And so he says, I'm going to do this for you. And he says, and I will stretch forth your strong scepter as you rule in the midst of your enemies. God here with that commands and makes certain the authoritative rule of the king over the earth. He's behind it. It's going to happen. The king will rule authoritatively over the earth. Now there's some interesting threads you can pull on in Bible study. We're not going to do it this morning. Sometimes the coming king's conquest emphasizes destruction, annihilation as at the end of this psalm. Sometimes in scripture, it denotes that he'll exercise rule over those who aren't destroyed as he rules and judges between the nations. And you can look up the various verses there. Zechariah has some, Matthew has others, Revelation 19. But the greater point here is that dominion and rule will be manifest by the Messiah. The king will reign over his kingdom, not partially, but completely. This rule will be from Zion. Zion throughout the Old Testament and then into the New Testament refers to Jerusalem, the mountain of God, the chosen dwelling place of God, and it is the place of his Messiah's rule. David wasn't using Zion in his mind and his conception to mean heaven. He wasn't using Zion to mean the church. He meant Jerusalem, 
This is David who conquered Jerusalem, who ruled from Jerusalem, who knew what God had done for Zion, that he wanted to be in Zion, that it was the place of his dwelling. And he sees this prophecy of God Yahweh saying, I will stretch forth my king's scepter from Zion and he will rule. Expectation number three. He will lead a resplendent army of his willing people. He will lead a resplendent army of his willing people. From a language perspective, this is the most complicated verse in this psalm. He says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. So you're the Messiahs, the king's people. Day of power is day of conquest. Later it's going to say it's day of wrath. We'll see it's really Day of the Lord, monikers refer to the day of the Lord across scripture. It's the day that this dominion is enforced. So on that day, his people will volunteer freely. So what is this, people who are volunteering freely? Well, the literal rendering of the phrase is that the people themselves are a free will offering. It pictures this, think conquest, think king, think dominion, think no draft. No forced conscription. Nobody's being drawn into service against their will. The king's army is populated by people who long to be in that army, who give themselves freely to the conquering king. And the language gets even more complicated. What is womb of the dawn, youth as the dew? The ESV is helpful here. It's a little cleaner. It says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This could be hinting to where this army originates. Revelation 19 says that there will be an army clothed in white linen, his holy garments, accompanying the conquering king when he returns. And I think theologically, biblically, that's what's being referred to here. You can note Isaiah 26, 19, which uses similar language and is challenging to understand, but there's hints at maybe resurrection. The dew seems to denote the vigor, the newness, the freshness of this army, which fits with the idea of resurrection. The bottom line is, is that I, I don't know definitively. What I know is that the overall picture is the ultimate king who's worthy of all allegiance simply because of who he is, is pictured followed by an army of people who long to serve him, who willingly give themselves to him and his cause. And they're holy. They're characterized by holiness. That's what's denoted by this in holy array, or as the ESV says, in holy garments. His army is a holy army. Now, we know that the work done to make this army holy has already been accomplished. That Christ's sacrifice, that Christ securing a people zealous for good works, that that has happened, that the work for that has happened. You are this army, not yet in fullness. Nobody here is resurrected. Nobody here is in perfect, holy array this morning. But you're his people, and this is an army of the Messiah's people that will accompany him in the day of his power. It's a beautiful picture. Much could be said, much could be applied. The willingness 
that, that characterizes the holy army is wonderful. Hearts changed so that there is nothing the king would ask that his army wouldn't want to do. Giving themselves, yielding themselves fully to his cause. Expectation number four. Verse four. He will serve unceasingly as a priest king. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is you, this Messiah, the king, you are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, our temptation here is to focus on Melchizedek, right? I mean, that's the temptation. Melchizedek, you know, and all of the nerdiness in our Bible study gets going, and that's good. But Melchizedek points forward to someone else. That's the point. It's not about him. It's about the Messiah. Just remember that as we make these comments. Now, for David to pen this would have been shocking First, this is penned during the Mosaic Law, which had a clearly defined priesthood. The law established the Levitical priesthood through Aaron. That was it. Those were the priests. Here, he's predicting the priesthood of the Messiah King, the one who's greater than David himself, and this priesthood is not of the Levitical order. So when David writes this prophecy, this is a completely other, a completely separate priesthood. That would have been shocking. Second, and most plainly, this means that the Messiah King is also a priest. You know your Bible history, examples of kings attempting to do priestly duties, they did not end well. Saul, 1 Samuel 13. Isaiah, 2 Chronicles 26. The Lord did not take kindly to kings who sought to subvert the Levitical priesthood, assume those roles, and do what they were not supposed to do for their own benefit, for their own ends. But here, David says, the Messiah King will be a priest. Not a Levitical priest, a completely different kind of priesthood. So it's shocking. This is new. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Well, God is speaking in verse 1, of course, about his Messiah. And this language is just a way to emphasize the decree. It's certain, right? It can't be broken, God is binding himself to this declaration with an oath. You're a priest forever. It's unending. It's unceasing. And now according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, we meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Melchizedek's pretty easy to trace through scripture. He shows up in Genesis 14. He leaves in Genesis 14. He shows back up in Psalm 110, and then he shows up quite a bit in Hebrews. And that's it. There's not a lot in the white spaces, so don't go looking. Genesis 14, he's the king of Salem, and he's also a priest, a priest of God Most High. He brings provision to Abraham after Abraham had rescued Lot and defeated warring kings, the kings of the east, king of Sodom's involved, several right marauding bands of kings and their armies, and they, take, they, they come in, they plunder, they pillage, they take Lot. Abraham gets his army, right, 300 and some odd trained men, and they go, and they go get Lot. They defeat the kings. They're coming back, and then all of a sudden, the king of Salem 
Melchizedek. Salem could refer to Jerusalem. It's not 100% definitive. But he's the king. And he comes and he brings provision. He brings bread. It's wine. It's not communion. It's just food. It's just strengthening provision. They're famished. And Abraham recognizes him as a spiritual authority. He gives him a tenth. He gives him an offering from what he had from the battle and recovery of the spoils. He says, right, Abraham affirms his priesthood. Melchizedek affirms Abraham's relationship with Yahweh, God Most High. Melchizedek's a priest of Most High God, and then he's gone. (laughs) And then David prophesies now of this coming king who would be a priest like Melchizedek. So why? What is this order? Well, again, you can go read Hebrews for a lot more detail and explanation. But Melchizedek uniquely combined the role of priest and king, right? In redemptive history, pre, that is before the Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek's there, and he's a priest and a king. And that, of course, portends the unique role that David here says the Messiah would have as priest and king. Each are royal priesthoods. Hebrews helps us see that unlike priests who require a genealogy, To validate their position, Melchizedek simply appears on the scene as a priest. He certainly didn't come from the line of Aaron, Levi. In a corresponding way, the Messiah's priesthood is by this oath. It's by the declaration of God. It's not because of his genealogy. It's not because of his relationship in the the Levitical line. It's because of God's oath. And it signifies that the Messiah's priesthood would be an entirely different type and order of priesthood. Again, you can go back and look at the earlier references I've given you for Hebrews and read through there. It's tempting to pull the car over and to want to unpack all that he unpacks there. In his, really, it's an exposition of verse 4. But our task this morning is to teach Psalm 110. So he prophesies of a coming priest king. He says the Messiah will also be a priest, a priest like Melchizedek. You can note in your study that the later prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 6, verse 9 through 14, combines king and priest in a future pointing prophecy and indicates that in the Messiah, those roles would be joined as well. What's the role of a priest? To make atonement for the sins of the people he represented, to intercede for them before God. Consider then the magnitude of this. David says that the coming, conquering king, the one who would lead his people, the one who would establish his rule among the nations will be one who forever is able to take care of sin and intercede on behalf of the people that he leads. And consider further that you and I, we relate to Christ this way right now. Hebrews makes that clear. He is our priest. He intercedes for us. He has provided the atonement once and for all and is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. He always lives, as Hebrews says, to make intercession for his people. It's an astounding prophecy, an astounding declaration in the middle of David's psalm. After indicating, though, this new role, this surprising role for the Messiah, he returns to the idea of conquering Verse five and six, that's our fifth expectation 
And that is that he will be empowered and victorious in his conquest. Now, the subject in these verses could be God, Yahweh, or the Messiah King. Lord, in verse 5, is not Lord Yahweh. It's not Yahweh translated Lord. That's why in your NAS, it's not in small caps. But I believe it's referring still to God, Yahweh, that he now is saying that he's at the right hand alongside the Messiah, empowering his conquest. Why do I think that? Well, because the you and the your in verse 5 follow down from verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, talking to the Messiah, the king. The Lord is at your right hand. I think God is saying that he is at the right hand, enabling the Messiah. And then earlier in the psalm, we see, right, who is making the enemies a footstool under the Messiah? God, Yahweh. Who's stretching forth the strong scepter, scepter through his Messiah? God, Yahweh. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6, I believe. But either way, the activity of God the Lord and his Messiah in this psalm are so interrelated as to be indistinguishable, Right? We know that intuitively. God's victory is Christ's victory. Christ's victory is God's victory. And so we don't have to get too hung up on this. But I think what he's saying is is that the Lord God is at the right hand of his king. Verse 5. And we see that at the end, actually, interestingly, of Psalm 109. Verse 31. For he, God, stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who judge his soul. So this is talking about God's accompanying presence, his enablement. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, we need to prepare our minds to allow the figurative language to help us imagine what's described. Kings, warfare, defeating enemies, ultimately. And it's just not something that we hear as naturally as those in the ancient Near East. But what's expected here is absolute conquest. So God the Lord is at the Messiah's right hand, and as a result, he will shatter kings, verse 5, in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Day of his wrath is, I believe, in parallel with verse 3, day of his power, and both of those things we could call, and some of them say day of the Lord. And the concept that you read about in the prophets and in the New Testament, which expands and is called the day of Christ. It's that awesome and terrible period of judgment on God's enemies and deliverance for God's people. But in verses 4 and 5, or 5 and 6, the focus is on the execution of God's judgment in battle. And I just want to say again, these verses aren't describing figuratively the success of the gospel. These, this, these are verses are prophesying the decisive, global, final victory of the Messiah over all of his enemies at the end of the age, empowered by Almighty God. The language is violent. He's shattering kings. He's judging nations. He's shattering chief men. The lands will be filled with corpses. And the description really here is remarkably similar to what you hear in the language of Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. I encourage you to go on your own and read that, the the rider on the white horse. And the language of ruling and ruling in the midst of his enemies and shattering the nations and corpses being there as defeated enemies is used there to describe the Messiah's return. Calvin in his commentary helps here. He says, with regard to just the language of conquest and 
King Jesus. He says, should any one of us be disposed to ask, where then is that spirit of meekness and gentleness with which the scriptures elsewhere inform us that the Christ shall be endued? I answer that as a shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce and formidable towards wolves and thieves, in like manner Christ is kind and gentle toward those who commit themselves to his care, while they who willfully and obstinately reject his yoke shall feel with what awful and terrible power he is armed. That's a sobering reminder, encouraging that we as Christ know him as tender shepherd, but may we never make the mistake that that tender shepherd would be that way toward his enemies at the end of the age. This says otherwise. Our last expectation comes in verse seven. That is the expectation that he, the Messiah priest king, will be honored and refreshed in his victory. He will be honored and refreshed in his victory. This phrase, lift up the head at the end of verse seven, refers to honor, exaltation, dignity. When the peoples were subdued, it was said that they they no longer lifted up their heads, Judges 8.28. Lifting up the head is the opposite of disgrace. You see that in Genesis 40.13. In Psalm 3.3, God is the one who lifts David's head, who lifts his head from disgrace, from shame, from hardship. So here it denotes confidence, It denotes a position of honor. And we also have this picture of the aftermath of battle and accompanying thirst. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Folks can get very creative with this verse. It seems to simply be a picture of a victorious king refreshing himself confidently, proud of the victory that God has provided. You think battle, conquest, an accompanying thirst, and here we see he will be refreshed and his head will be high. He will be honored, not disgraced. And what a stark contrast with the picture in the Gospels. Just prior to Christ's death, as he's given a crown of thorns, and a mock robe, and a reed for a scepter, all denoting humiliation. He will not be weak from suffering when he returns. He's currently exalted. He's seated at God's right hand. All authority has been granted to him. And when our glorious priest king returns, he will lift his head in triumph. And he'll be refreshed from the victory that Almighty God executes through him, and for him. Much more could be said. This is an amazing psalm. What are just a few takeaways? First, and I think most obviously, we just simply need to ask, do you think about Christ and the wonder of all he is for his people? Do you think about Christ and the wonder of all that he is for his people. The Old Testament saints longed for this person that David said was coming. 
Just think of the early pages of the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke and how you see the people respond to the announcements that him, the Messiah King, was here. He's coming. Think of Simeon's words in Luke chapter 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon longed for the Christ, the promised Christ of Psalm 110. And we know him. We have him. Do we think about all he is for us for his people. This psalm is Christological. It tells us about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And as I said at the beginning, it is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Evidently, it's very important for us to recognize the truths of Psalm 110 and how it affects how we relate to Christ. So as we think about that and applying that, we can ask, do we desire to have our devotion fueled by a deeper knowledge of the Messiah. And Psalm 110 reminds us of who it is our hearts long for, just like Simeon. And we have it even better. We know his sacrifice. We know of his resurrection. We know of his ascension and that that exaltation has occurred. And there's a subtle temptation for us who are very familiar with Scripture, who regularly hear the Bible taught, to look for more. What do I mean by that? Well, we want to feel different. Maybe we want a sermon to fix our deficient emotions with just the right application, or we want a Christian book to fix our sin problems with the right combination of Bible verses and tone. That resulting subtle temptation is not to simply accept what the scriptures actually give us. Consider for a minute the writer of the Hebrews, who is dealing with a people in danger of turning from Jesus Christ into eternal damnation. They run the risk of abandoning the faith. What does he give them in his sermon? He addresses their specific need. They were evidently infatuated with the Old Testament law, thought they still needed it. The Levitical priesthood was essential. But what does he give them? Well, he gives them an exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4, among other things. Don't turn from the faith. Don't harden your heart in bitterness Jesus is a better high priest than you want. And then he unpacks Melchizedek. Now, if I'm in the congregation hearing that letter in 2022, I may think it's not very applicable. It's foolish, right? It's dangerous. He gave them Christ. The danger they faced was related to their deficient theology of their Savior. 
we need to be reminded of who our Savior is, what our Savior's done, what our Savior is coming to do, to be refreshed by all that he is for us, having our devotion fueled for that. There's nothing more applicable than Christ. The realities of Psalm 110 should color everything we do as Christians while we wait for him to come back, where we will be in the army, willingly, self-giving, in holy array, marching with our king. Our priest king has taken care of our sin. He has taken care of ensuring that our future holy resplendence and service will be accomplished. And our security for future victory, for future vindication, for future glory and honor with him is secure because of God and his Messiah and what he will do. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by what you've given us in your word. We look at what you gave David and how astonishing that must have been. How wonderful it must have been. And then we say that we at this point in history have been given even more. That we know your Messiah, our Savior, our priest king. Help us to grasp, to apprehend the significance of who, you, who you've revealed him to be for us. May that fuel our obedience. May it fuel our affections for you and our service for you now as we're made into the image of him so that we may one day serve him and you perfectly for all eternity. Bless us as we go from here with your word. Amen.